Hello and welcome to episode three of Bad Gaze, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gay men in history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode we'll be profiling a different gay villain from history, looking at their life in context and how their sexuality informed that infamy. So we want to complicate gay history by talking about evil people and complicated people instead of just the heroes that a lot of histories of gay lives and gay movements focus on. And we're focusing on men because I think we can all agree that cis men are definitionally the most bad. We want to ask why we don't remember our villains as well as we remember our heroes. Last week we talked about the nightmare twink who helped bring down Oscar Wilde. Who are we profiling this week, Ben? Well, this week we're talking about T.E. Lawrence, who is better known as Lawrence of Arabia. And this gives us the opportunity to talk about this relationship between anthropology and imperialism and especially male homosexuality um, and male homosexuality in what we would now call the modern period. Um, One of my favorite facts is that the term homosexuality and the first professional organizations for anthropologists are both invented in the same place in Berlin in the same year, 1869. Isn't that nuts? That is nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there are connections between homosexuality and the anthropological discipline and homosexuality and a kind of modernist primitivism in anthropology and archaeology and in visual culture um, that are really, I think, interesting to think about. Um, And that connection is a big part of the focus of my own academic research. This is one of my big bugaboos. There's a book by Robert Aldrich, a historian, called Colonialism and Homosexuality, in which he sort of starts to break down the ways in which the colonies served as sites for a certain kind of European homosexual imagination and as the site for homosexual acts. Um, He writes that in French slang of the late 19th century, and everyone's going to have to excuse my French pronunciation here, but fait passer son privé colonial, um to basically do it colonial style meant to initiate someone into sodomy. Um, Homosexual misbehavior was not just a matter of private life, he writes. Instead, explorers channeled energies into expeditions and homoerotic friendships rather than into quote-unquote normal married life. And this is certainly true of someone like Lawrence, um, who channels so much of the energy in his life into these... uh, complicated colonial imperial uh, foreign adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, and Aldrich also notes that that this is a complicated form of identification or a complicated kind of association in which he writes, quote, a significant number of European homosexuals overseas displayed an ambivalent attitude towards imperialism or took an avowedly critical stance on European rule. Their renegade position as sexual heretics at home had led them to sexual opportunities in foreign countries, yet cast them in an ambiguous position. Although representatives of the master race and imperial power, they did not fit into the mold of heterosexual married life and child-rearing. They trespassed across bounds of property by being intimate with foreign men and sometimes making too close friends of them, end quote. And when I think with someone like Lawrence, you see this kind of double-sidedness where you have somebody who is involved in the British army at very high levels, which is obviously about as imperial or colonial as an institution as you can get, but also somebody who sees his involvement and at least partially his 
social and erotic connection with these young Arab men as being about the self-determination of Arab people against the Ottoman Empire. So it's a very odd kind of um, self-understanding and um, I think is interesting to talk about in the context of uh, all kinds of debates. So could you tell us a little bit more about his life story? Absolutely. So he's born out of wedlock in Wales in 1888. Um, and that state of being illegitimate will kind of follow him or haunt him throughout his life. He learns about it as a child and becomes kind of obsessed with it. Um, his father was an Anglo-Irish uh, landlord, Thomas Chapman, who in 1914 was knighted Sir Thomas Chapman. Uh, and his mother was named Sarah Junner, and she was a Scottish governess. And Chapman ended up leaving his wife and his first family behind in Ireland and moving to England to um, cohabitate with Sarah Jenner. And they would refer to themselves as Mr. and Mrs. Lawrence. Um, the name Lawrence was taken from uh, Sarah's likely father. Sarah was also born out of wedlock. So you have somebody who's both at the sort of highest levels of British society, but also is at least through two generations of illegitimacy, which at this time is obviously a big deal for stigma, people. Yeah. A big, big stigma and something that you really feel in, you know, in yourself. Um, they live in Scotland for a bit. They live in France for a bit. And in 1896, when um, T.E. is a teenager, they move to Oxford. Um, and he would bike around Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, and Oxfordshire with his schoolmates and Berkshire. visit Berkshire. I, I, I'm, I'm correcting your pronunciation this, this episode. Berkshire. Yeah. Why? Why does England? <laughs> um, that'll be our next podcast. Why does England? Anyway, they would cycle around Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, and Oxfordshire, and they would visit um, the Paris churches in different villages villages, um, and they would study monuments, antiquities, things they found in the church, they would make rubbings, they would monitor building sites, and they would present all of these findings to the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. And so he develops this antiquarian interest very young. And there's an interesting uh, thing that's noted by uh, Elizabeth Freeman in her book Time Binds, that especially earlier in the 19th century, there was a really big discursive association between antiquarianism and a kind of queer sexuality. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, there's one um, engraving she talks about that is made in the early 19th century that depicts sort of wizened, trolley antiquarians fondling the genitals of youthful Greek statues. <laughs> um, so the, you know, the, the queer coding begins early here. Um, and that lives on, of course, um, through the Warren Cup and those aspects in the British Museum of this sort of yeah, queer antiquarianism. Of course, yeah. So uh, around from 1907 to 1910, uh, Lawrence is reading history at Jesus College in Oxford. Um, in the summer of 1909, between his second and third year, he decides to do a three-month solo walking tour of Crusader castles in Syria, and he walks uh, 1,000 miles, 1,600 kilometers on foot. Um, he ends up writing his thesis on that um, and graduates with first-class honors. Um, he was fascinated by the Crusades and by the Middle Ages. His brother Arnold would later remember that for him, uh, thinking about this medieval time was a dream way of escape from bourgeois England. Mm. And it's something that you notice, or that I've seen a lot in these kind of gay primitivists, 
the desire to escape at any costs from bourgeois life and the sort of self-conception of their own homosexuality as providing a way out of that for them. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, what's ironic is that a lot of these forms of self-understanding that are developed out of knowledge produced in colonial conditions are actually collaborating with that colonialism and therefore collaborating with the systems that are upholding the bourgeois life itself. So it seems like a way out for people, but of course it's really not. Mm -hmm. um, so after he graduates, he uh, goes back to Syria to work on archaeological digs, and he works with a guy named Campbell Thompson from the British Museum and Leonard Woolley and is part of some pretty significant uh, archaeological work. Woolley becomes his sort of primary archaeological partner at the time, and Woolley is one of the first archaeologists who uses uh, the kinds of scientific methods that we think about in the discipline now. And this is when uh, the relationship that becomes Lawrence's kind of primary uh, romantic and perhaps sexual relationship begins. Um, in 1911... Uh, he meets a boy who is either 13 or 14 who's known as Dahum. And this is one of the locals who were hired to work uh, sort of menial labor on the archaeological dig. And uh, a lot of the information here about their relationship comes from a book by Anthony Satin called The Young T.E. Lawrence. Um, Dahum became Lawrence's assistant, uh, Lawrence kind of took a liking to him. Uh, Lawrence taught him how to use the cameras um, on the dig, how to make rubbings of inscriptions, and by the summer of 1913, so two years later, uh, this boy who's now 15 or 16 is one of the senior members of this archaeological team. And at this point, um, Satin reports and other contemporary observers, uh, the two of them are spending pretty much all of their time together. They're working together on the digs, they're swimming in the Euphrates River at night, they're cleaning, they're drawing, they're photographing, and uh, this time Lawrence is writing his memoirs of this time called The Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And this doesn't go unnoticed, so Woolley notices what's going on. He doesn't say anything in the moment, but after Lawrence dies, he described how Lawrence had had, quote, Dalhum to live with him and got him to pose as a model for a queer crouching figure, which he carved in the soft local limestone, unquote. And Satin notes that, that this contains the pretty obviously made insinuation that there's a sexual relationship mm -hmm. between Lawrence and, and this boy. And Woolley then, uh, again, writing after Lawrence's death, spelled it out, quote, to make an image was bad enough in this way, but to portray a naked figure was proof of evil of another sort. Um... And it's important to remember, as we discussed in the Bosey episode, that homosexuality is illegal in the UK until 1967, even in private and between consenting adults. So that suggestion, evil of another sort, would have been really um, shocking and damaging to someone's reputation in the 1930s. And that would have been understood as an innuendo for homosexuality. Yes. Um, and then Satin reports, interestingly, that later on, Woolley ends up kind of recanting and saying... Well, he was interested in homosexuality, but only in an intellectual way. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yes, exactly. Um, and it's interesting, Lawrence actually himself said that he never had a sexual relationship. And a lot of his friends thought that that was credible. Um, now, whether or not sadomasochism 
without genital contact as sex is something we can maybe talk about later because he almost certainly had some of that. Mm-hmm. But um, in 1927, he wrote to E.M. Forster that he was funnily made up sexually. Um, he also wrote to Forster that, quote, the Turks, as you probably know or have guessed through the reticences of the Seven Pillars, did it to me by force, unquote. And we'll talk about that experience later on. Um, and uh, the next year, in 1934, he wrote to Robert Graves, who's a poet and a scholar, and at that point was going to be his biographer. He wrote, quote, As I wrote, with some courage, I think, few people admit the damaging ignorance. I haven't ever and don't much want to. And uh, haven't ever there is referring to sex. Mm-hmm. Um, Graves is also a really interesting figure to be associated with this kind of primitivist, anthropologically oriented homosexual identity or sort of queer figure. Because uh, again, whether or not this is a homosexual identity is really complicated. Um, Graves will go on to write a book called The White Goddess, which is about poetic myth making and the idea of a kind of universal goddess worship um, and ends up being very influential to a lot of left esoteric thinkers and writers and scholars. And Graves is also later on, much later on in the 1950s, in touch with Harry Hay, who's an American gay rights activist who is one of the principal figures of the theorizing of this kind of primitivist esoteric um, gay myth-making and identity-making that I spend a lot of time studying. So to go back to the question of this relationship with Dahum, the dedication to The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, which is the book that Lawrence publishes about his time working on the archaeological digs, and then later on as a soldier in the British army and um, working with the forces of the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Turks during World War I, the dedication to that book is a poem that's dedicated to... to S.A., and the poem, the opening lines of the poem are this. I loved you, so I drew these tides of men into my hands, and wrote my will across the sky in stars, to earn you freedom, the seven-pillared worthy house, that your eyes might be shining for me when we came. And so there's a lot of theories about who the addressee of this is. Some people read S.A. as Saudi Arabia, some people read the poem as being written to the Arab people, and a lot of people think it's to Dahum. And Dahum seems to have died of typhus before 1918. So then there's this interesting point in 1914 where these anthropological digs, which start out as having, I think, certainly an imperial purpose, but not necessarily a direct military one, um, begin to be co-opted by the British military. So Woolsey and Lawrence are co-opted, um, to provide a scientific smokescreen for a British military survey of the Negev Desert. And whereabouts is the Negev Desert? So the Negev Desert is in present-day Israel-Palestine. And the reason the Negev Desert, if you think about where that is, is important for the British military is that as tensions are rising in the build-up to World War I, if there's going to be a conflict between Ottomans and Arabs, the soldiers are going to have to cross that piece of land to get to Egypt, Mm -hmm. if you can sort of think about how that's all set up. So they publish 
a report of their archaeological findings, but also uh, send to the military a report of things like where the water is and where the mountains are and how you could get through it. And so that ends up being important. Um, in August of 1914, of course, uh, World War I breaks out, and he ends up being um, co-opted. Lawrence ends up being co-opted into the uh, Arab Bureau Intelligence Unit in Cairo, by an archaeologist named David Hogarth, who he had been working with before. And again, if you think about archaeologists and other scientists who had been working in the area who were really familiar with the geology, the geography, the history, you understand why those people would be valuable to military intelligence at a time of conflict. And the part of Lawrence's story that I think people are the most familiar with is his rise through the military and his series of kind of spectacular military adventures against the Ottomans, culminating in the capture of Damascus in 1918, and some people credit him with the invention of guerrilla warfare. There is already a lot about this, including that famous movie, and so we're not going to spend too much time going through every fustian nuance of every battle, but I think it is interesting to note that he, really without much military training, but just with his knowledge of the language, becomes an incredibly valuable commander who certainly seems to self-conceive of his work as being about the collective liberation of the Arab people from Ottoman rule rather than being about the exercise of British imperial or colonial power in the Arab world in North Africa, which I think is interesting to think about. Hmm. Whether that self-conception matters or not, is very much up for debate. It's interesting, therefore, that the film that comes out comes out during a, the, around the process of British decolonialization in the 1950s and 60s. I think the film is 1962, and therefore perhaps is playing into some British idea about its its actual role in, colonia, in colonialization. Yeah, and it's a story, I think, if you take Lawrence at his word, where British colonialism is doing the thing that it often said it was doing, which was acting in the best interests of a people against some other empire that was worse. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that discourse goes all the way back to the first kind of conversations in the UK about how the purpose of building the naval empire, and this is in the early modern period, was to keep the seas open for the free commerce of all peoples. Mm -hmm. And then that discourse evolves through time, it makes a stop in Lawrence's time, and now I think that's the discourse of neoconservatism and the, the, the discourse of these endless wars in the Middle East that are actually all about securing freedom. So at this time, Lawrence has a lot of really interesting and maybe less healthful or purely enjoyable sexual and erotic experiences. Um, he would later write of this time in The Seven Pillars of Wisdom about homosexuality among Arab soldiers that he was working with during the Arab revolts. And this is the full quote, and I think you'll uh, get a kick out of this. Quote, In horror of such sordid commerce, and by such sordid commerce he's talking about sex with sick female prostitutes, female prostitutes with venereal disease, our youths began indifferently to slake one another's few needs in their own clean bodies, a cold convenience that by comparison seemed sexless and even pure. Later some began to justify this sterile process, and swore that friends quivering together in the yielding sand with intimate hot limbs in supreme embrace 
found there hidden in the darkness a sensual coefficient of the mental passion which was welding our souls and spirits in one flaming effort. Several, thirsting to punish appetites they could not wholly prevent, took a savage pride in degrading the body, and offered themselves fiercely in any habit which promised physical pain or filth. <laughs> wow. And I think it's interesting how quickly you get from indifferent slaking of needs in their own clean bodies, which is just a cold convenience, and it's sexless and pure, and literally less than a sentence later, we're quivering together in the yielding sand with intimate hot limbs and a supreme embrace, which sounds fun, and I'd like to do it later. Um, and it's interesting, the, the, the back half of that quote brings us to the theme of masochism, um, which becomes very important in Lawrence's later sexual life. Um, there's a compilation of gay love letters uh, collected by Richter Norton, who's a controversial figure, but who I think did us all a great service by collecting these letters together. And he notes that in 1917, uh, during this spectacular sequence of guerrilla conquests, Lawrence is captured as a spy in Syria at Dera, south of Damascus. And Hajim Bey, who was the Ottoman governor at the time, tried to have sex with him. He resisted. And he was then turned over to a gang of soldiers by whom he was tortured and gang-raped. And he wrote in The Seven Pillars of Wisdom about this experience that it, quote, journeyed with me since, fascination and terror and morbid desire, lascivious and vicious perhaps, but like the striving of a moth towards its flame. And he never specifies the precise nature of the contact, mm -hmm. um, but it ends up being very important um, to his later psychology. A lot of biographers agree. Now, there's one guy um, named James Barr who claimed that the episode was invented, and some scholars think that he may have exaggerated the severity of his injuries, but it does seem like there's a lot of corroboration for what's here, and he also doesn't seem to have exaggerated his life story a lot. Um, Lawrence ends his account in The Seven Pillars of Wisdom of this episode with the statement, quote, In Dera that night, the citadel of my integrity had been irrevocably lost. So... After the end of the war... He's got quite a turn of phrase, hasn't he? He does, yeah. He's a poet. After the end of the war, um, he begins to work with a journalist named Lowell Thomas. And Thomas senses that there's going to be public appetite for stories of these adventures, which were not particularly well reported on previously. Thomas creates a photo show in London called With Allenby in Palestine, which is about the adventures of another British intelligence agent named Allenby. And this is uh, obviously a kind of Orientalist fantasy in which, you know, it's the exotic, strange Middle East. Lawrence is included in the show in a sort of supporting role, but then all of a sudden... Um, Thomas realized that the most popular part of the show were these photos of Lawrence dressed in Bedouin Arab garb. And these are very famous photos that I think a lot of people have seen and that come to mind when people think Lawrence of Arabia. You think of the uh, him in that garb uh, or him being played by Peter O'Toole in that garb, mm -hmm. striding across the sort of infinite desert, etc. Um, so... Lowell Thomas was not an idiot, and he knew what he was doing, and he relaunched the show in 1920 under the new title with Allenby in Palestine and Lawrence in Arabia. And that's where the phrase Lawrence in Arabia comes from, or sort of Lawrence of Arabia comes from. And uh, again, he becomes a kind of star of this show and becomes immensely 
well-known in the UK, and he has a very ambivalent relationship to this fame, and I think ends up feeling that he doesn't really deserve it, and that he was only a supporting player in this kind of Arab struggle for self-determination. Um, he ends up going to work at the colonial office under Winston Churchill, and hates it. Uh, he writes to Robert Graves uh, that he wish he hadn't gone, and that he feels locked up in this office. And again, um, this is another case where regardless of what you think of his motivations or his intentions, he's working in the literal bureaucratic administration of the British colonial state and doing so to some extent by choice. In 1922, spooked by this sudden fame, he ends up retreating from public life and re-enlisting in the army and he serves as an enlisted man in the Royal Air Force. And he came out of the army with an officer's rank after World War I, but he went back in on his own insistence as an enlisted man. And this is the time when, as he serves in the army, he writes and publishes The Seven Pillars of Wisdom and does some translation work, and he ends up writing another book about his time in the Royal Air Force as an infantryman that was not published until after his death. So he sort of retreats from public life, but he's still publishing these books. So to go back to Richter Norton for a second, some of the letters of Lawrence that Richter Norton collected reveal really interesting role play and sadomasochistic relationships that Lawrence is engaging with in this period. And a lot of biographers have speculated that this is connected to that incidence of beating and gang rape by the Turkish soldiers in Syria in 1917. So Lawrence created or seems to have created a fictional character, an uncle named R, who would write instructions to his friend John Bruce, who he had met in the army, who also enlisted uh, in 1923, so right about when Lawrence went back in, for the violent discipline and sort of masochistic beating of Lawrence himself, who's referred to as Ted. So it's like he's personifying himself as his own naughty nephew mm -hmm. in these letters written by this imagined authority figure. And he would be beaten with a metal whip by Bruce on his bare butt until he came. And there are notes Norton has found in Lawrence's diary saying things like 30 from Jock. Jock was his nickname for Bruce, and that presumably indicates 30 lashes. Sometimes it was as many as 75. Um, in 1969, Bruce sold his story to the Sunday Times, and the, that was later serialized, and this created a sort of scandal in England. And uh, I want to quote now from one of these letters, which if people are interested is available on Richter Norton's website. And this is, again, in the persona of Uncle R being written to uh, Bruce for the discipline of naughty schoolboy Ted. But, of course, R and Ted are the same person. Quote, Please take any chance his friendship for you gives to impress upon him how wrong it is for him at his age and standing to force us to use these schoolboy measures against him. He should be ashamed to hold his head up against his fellows, knowing that he had suffered so humiliating and undignified a punishment. Try and drive some sense into his head. Then we go into the gory details of the whipping. Hills, who that's the term for Bruce that is used in the letters sometimes, reports that after the birching, Ted cried out quite loudly and begged for mercy. Please confirm this and recollect in what terms his plea was made. Wow. So he wants to hear his own response, which obviously he had experienced quoted back to him. And this the complicated role play is part of the yeah. is part of the sexual experience that I think is really interesting. It's really deeply psychologically kinky, right? It's really deeply psychologically kinky. Yeah, it's some of the kinkiest 
sex, if we want to call it sex, and again, that may be an interesting question to talk about that I have ever heard of. And Lawrence ends up leaving military service at the age of 46, and two months later gets into a motorcycle crash in Dorset. Um, he swerved to avoid hitting some boys on their bicycles, lost control, was thrown off the bike, and he died six days later on the 19th of May, 1935. And so that's the life story of T.E. Lawrence. Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out. And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com slash badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, we'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh and some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated, and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgayspod. And saying nice things is always free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks. Wow. There's so much there that I didn't know about him and that isn't sort of in his public persona, and, and especially to do with that sort of kinky side of him. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy, and I think it's interesting. A lot of the discourse around him, I think, oriented itself to protect him from these conversations about homosexuality and masochism and kink, because I think if you were sympathetic to him in the 1960s, you probably would have wanted to think of these rumors as being scurrilous gossip. And now I think we can look back and think of these things as just other complicating elements of his persona and who he was. Yeah, I mean, growing up, he was always presented, I think, taught to me at least, in the UK as as a, as a hero in a quite an uncomplicated colonialist way in terms of, like I was saying before, this, this moment at the end of colonialism, which is looking back on the empire and the roles of adventurers like... Uh, like Lawrence as being in some way liberatory forces for local populations or semi-civilizing agents, which obviously is through the racist uh, lens of the 1960s British cultural industry. But obviously he had probably a more complex, more nuanced view of his own role in it. He did. I mean, I think he's someone who is more complicated than anything else. I mean, he's somebody who is undeniably an agent of British Empire, somebody who is working in the British military, somebody who's working in the British colonial office. And I don't think either of us are particularly inclined to engage in defenses of uh, British imperial governance, rule, or adventure. Um, And at the same time, he is somebody who seems to be very personally concerned, and in a genuine way, not just in a kind of justification way, with the culture with the indigenous life forms with the struggle for self-determination of the people that he sees himself as kind of becoming a part of and of course that 
idea that you yourself can quote unquote go native is also a colonial act. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a reason why we're putting him on a podcast called Bad Gaze, even though we might have some sympathy for his own motives or some um, understanding of kind of where he was coming from and the kinds of things he was thinking about and maybe think that if he wasn't Empire's worst agent, he still was one of its agents. Absolutely, yeah. Though, I mean, there was a lot in what you said in his story that reminded me, I saw parallels or um, links with the story of um, Sir Roger Casement, who was the uh, Anglo-Irish um, uh, diplomat who worked for the Foreign Office, who then became a humanitarian activist in the Congo. And Roger Casement was not a bad gay, correct? Uh, uh, no, not a bad gay at all, but... Um, in, Certainly, like there are similar links in terms of he became a humanitarian activist, um, uncover- uncovering a lot of the sort of cr- uh, crimes against humanity perpetrated in the Belgian Congo when it was um, a personal colon- colony of King Leopold. Huh. But he, uh, while he was there, he engaged in um, a lot of relationships with local men, uh, which he wrote about in uh, these black diaries, which are his private diaries. And he was uh, a hero within... British society at the time for uncovering these um, these colonial crimes to the Belgians, which are seen to be obviously so unlike the British colonial attitudes at the time. But yeah, he was he was he was a, a sort of a hero at the time. And then later um, during the Easter Rising, he was involved in Irish republicanism, and he was um, uh, made a deal with the Germans in the Easter Rising in nineteen sixteen. Obviously during the uh, during the First World War. Uh, to supply, I think, to supply arms to, towards the rebels, and as a result, he was tried and executed. But in the aftermath of that, and in terms of his legacy, these diaries again were unearthed about his um, his sexuality and used to discredit um, his role as uh, sort of his his role as an anti-colonial um, operator or as a colonial agent as well. Yeah, I mean, Lawrence in the late nineteen twenties actually wanted to write a biography of Casement, and what stopped him was that he was prevented by the Home Office, by the British Home Office, from seeing the diaries. And he determined that you couldn't write a good biography of Casement without reading the unexpurgated diaries, and he was blocked from doing so. Uh, so so maybe Lawrence himself saw a relationship between the, their two lives. Quite possibly. Yeah. It's also interesting comparing him to uh, Ernst Rehm, who we covered in the first episode of Bad Gaze, um, and this attitude that they seem to share around a sort of masculinist um, position of uh, sexuality in the armed forces or or um, sex, sex between men in all-male all homosocial environments and the, and the role that, that played in sort of uh, backing up their, um, their sense of masculinity, perhaps. Well, I think Lawrence is less of an extreme masculinist than Rehm. I mean, so are most people. Um he, I don't think, is specifically denigrating women and female influence to the same kind of outright degree, although you can certainly read a certain amount of misogyny into, for example, his description of the prostitution uh, mm-hmm. in that quote from The Seven Pillars that we read, um, in contrast to which, you know, the male-male love is pure. Um, I think situational homosexuality in all-male homosexual environments is a tale as old as time and continues to be, and so... There is, to some extent, a connection there as we think about this kind of broader theme in the podcast of what these gay villains, these complicated gay figures, 
mean as we talk about the construction of a gay identity in the modern era and the kind of proto-identities that are beginning to float around in the early modern era, but I don't know that there's so much of a direct connection to that extreme visceral masculinism. Um, and again, I think anytime you're making comparisons with Nazis, it's important just to point out that Rain was a Nazi and Lawrence wasn't. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that are problematic about Lawrence's particular version of British colonial ideology and his kind of um, the white savior narrative that he seemed to believe about himself and that certainly has blossomed up around him. Mm -hmm. But again, it is just definitionally different from national socialism. There seems to be something quite telling, though, that they, that he is a man who comes to probably have his first experiences of either a romantic or a sexual uh, of, of a romantic and sexual nature or intensity within um, within a social environment that was built around violence uh, being the army absolutely and then that kind of leads you right into the sadomasochistic and kink experiences which are so complicated for him because they seem to arise out of this experience of rape mm -hmm. and I don't know. I mean, if this was somebody writing now a personal essay about a different series of experiences, but one in which they were coming to process their gang rape through engaging in kinky sex, that's a kind of personal narrative you could imagine now in the 2010s. But I think it's really remarkable to think about that maybe being what Lawrence was doing back at the time. Yeah. And again, I think the way that a lot of this has been written about and spoken about is incredibly sensationalistic. You know, this kind of British tabloid media, can you believe our great national hero was actually this dirty, kinky whore? And obviously I don't think that's a particularly helpful way to talk about it, but I do think it's an important part of someone's character, um, especially when you're thinking uh, about the kinds of questions that we're thinking about where complicated relationships to sexuality have a lot to do with the foundation of these alternative sexual identities. Yeah, and within such repressive and awful sexual environments. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, uh, our listeners just have to think back to the layout of the legal situation in this period mm -hmm. that you described during the Bosey episode. And it's interesting, this is happening just a few years after the Wild Trials. Um, so you see why Syria, for Lawrence, as a place where he can engage in activities that certainly would have raised the alarm in Britain comes to seem like a paradise. And I think it's really interesting and unexamined the extent to which the experiences and sexual experiences of gay men were actually central to the creation of Orientalist discourse in some way. And I think that's what the story helps us to reveal. So, Hugh, are we saying bad gay or not bad gay? Uh, I would say extremely complicated gay, but a fascinating man. I would say extremely complicated gay made bad by the systems in which he found himself and maybe didn't do enough to deconstruct. Yeah, I think that would be a fair assessment. And if people would like to learn more about this fascinating guy, um, one great place to look is The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, Lawrence's own book about his experiences. Um, as you heard in our quotes, he's a really compelling and interesting writer. Um, there's the biography of him before that period that I mentioned, the young T.E. Lawrence. Uh, people can Google 
the love letters. There are more of these kind of kink love letters that have been collected by Rich, uh, Richter Norton, and there's biographies by Malcolm Brown, John E. Mack, and Jeremy Wilson. So thank you so much for listening to our third episode. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at BadGazePod. Or you can follow us. Uh, my Twitter is at Hugh Lemmy. My Twitter is at Ben Writes Things. And if you'd like to support us on Patreon, that's of course appreciated. And you heard how to do that earlier in the show. Thanks so much.